Happy 2022, everyone. I'm Pam Druckerman, and welcome to another episode of Influence as Currency. To kick off the new year, I wanted to start with a subject that has always been at the forefront of cultural change and something that is near and dear to my heart, queer culture. By the way, I have to note that everyone on the pod today is part of the queer community, and for that matter, everyone I know is actually queer. Okay, that last bit isn't totally true, but it is a a wishful thought. According to a recent PEW poll, 90% of Americans know someone in the queer community. We are everywhere you look today, and in a world of so much uncertainty, one could say that queer people are constantly teaching us more inclusive ways to live alongside each other. In fact, that's a quote from one of my guests. As I mentioned, we're gaining more representation in politics, almost a thousand LGBTQ plus elected officials as of last July. By the way, that's a 17% increase year over year. The first active NFL player came out as gay this year, along with many other artists, actors, and influencers. One in six adults in Gen Z identifies as something other than heterosexual, so queer culture is our future. Actually, it's our present. And that's what we're here to talk about today. What we are today, where we're going, and how brands can better communicate with our community versus, I don't know, the just once a year moment when they show up at Pride. My first guest is Sarah Burke, newly appointed editor-in-chief of Them. Them is a next-generation LGBTQ plus brand launched here at Condé Nast in 2017. It chronicles and celebrates the stories, people, and voices that inspire all of us from pop culture to style to politics and news, all through the lens of today's LGBTQ plus community. Them became the first ever brand to receive a Webby Award in 2021 for diversity and inclusion in social media. Sarah comes to Condé from Vice, where she most recently oversaw the production of the Vice World News documentary series Transnational. In 2019, she became special projects editor on the Features Desk. She's originally from Honolulu, but currently lives in Bed-Stuy. And Sarah is known for telling stories about identity that are bold, challenging, and lead the cultural conversation. So I can't wait to get it all out of her today. Also joining my pod today is Zachary Jucker. Love the name. I'm convinced we're related. Zachary is an independent artist, filmmaker, cultural producer, and trans woman who breaks down the way we think about gender sexuality, and seeing. When I asked Sarah who else should do this with us today, her first response was Zachary, hard stop, because the two of them have worked together before and because she's just fucking amazing. She co-directed and executive produced The Lady in the Dale, which you can watch now on HBO Max, which has been nominated for Best New Documentary Series by the Independent Spirit Awards, and she stars in a new film debuting later this month at the virtual Sundance Film Festival called Framing Agnes. I can't wait to hear all about that. So, as you can see, we have a lot to get through today, so let's get into it. All right. All right. Welcome to you both. I really appreciate you being here today. I want to start with your backgrounds. I just read off a lot of that because not only are they so interesting and rich, but I also understand the two of you have crossed paths before, which we'll get into. So, my first question is to you, Sarah. Since you're the newbie at Connie Nass, why don't you start out telling us a little bit about your history and how you ended up here. I feel like that was like an incredibly thorough introduction. So I'm like, I apologize right? if I repeat some of it myself. But like you said, I'm born and raised in Honolulu. I moved to the mainland, as we call it, after high school to go to college. And my start in journalism was really in arts and culture reporting. I worked at a small alt-weekly in the Bay Area called the East Bay Express, and I was the art critic and then the arts and culture editor and then later the managing editor. But I really kind of fell in love with local news journalism. Eventually, I had to expand, though. So 
I moved to New York and started as a, a general assignment editor at Broadly, which was Vice's now defunct, initially women's site, and then identity-focused site. And I kind of landed there right at the transition between those two missions. So I really got the opportunity to be involved with redefining the brand, strategizing, and thinking through what does identity journalism really look like? What does that even really mean? And so I got the chance to do a number of kind of bigger, more ambitious projects that help put a stake in the ground for that brand and say, okay, this is who we are. This is what we stand for. And that's actually how I crossed paths with Zachary initially. We did an oral history archive. And then eventually I became special projects editor and finally ended up here. What was the driving factor for you as this being a next step in your career? Well, I'll be totally honest. I didn't imagine myself in this role. If you had asked me a few years ago Mm. what I would be doing now, I wouldn't have said this. And maybe I just wasn't dreaming big enough. But I've loved them for so long. And when I was reached out to about the role, it was just immediately clear to me what an incredible opportunity. It was obviously not just for myself, but just In terms of queer media in general, I think them is such a special brand because it was really built from the ground up as an inclusive brand. And it's always been really intersectional. And so I think it has a really special opportunity. And I was just honored to get the chance to take the helm. And I want to kind of get something out of the way here because I think for many of our listeners, there's still questions about proper terms to use for our community. I had to have a a sidebar conversation with my wife about, like, is everything under the queer umbrella, if you will? And her immediate answer was, yes, Pam, and you should already know the answer to that. But when we talk about LGBTQ+, are we using queer as a blanket term? Can you break it down for us? We're going to use a lot of these terms throughout the pod. I think it'd be helpful for our, our listeners to understand and have a little more perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think big picture outside of this podcast, obviously, I would say, like most things related to identity, there's not really one right answer here. For them as a publication, we do use LGBTQ plus in our house style. And I think that that's a really good inclusive standard. I will say, as a queer person in conversation, I usually say queer more so as a blanket term, especially among other queer people. And, and I see my peers mostly doing the same. But I don't know. I'm curious, Zachary, is that true for you as well? Absolutely. It's a time in which queer and trans people are finding themselves in the hot seat at the center of the culture wars in this time that's extremely fractured. I've thought it very helpful to have more words to use to describe ourselves. And at the same time, I always put my humanity up front. And when people ask how I identify, I say, as a human, because there's more that unifies us than divides us. What you just said seems so simple, right? This idea that we're human, that's how I identify. But why do you think that's so hard for I actually think it's not just hard for people outside the queer community. I think it's hard for people inside the queer community, this desire to identify, this pressure in a way to identify. Like, why do you think that is? It's a way of people finding each other, of signaling, and it sometimes works across purposes. Sometimes it makes us more isolated in our silos. So while 
we can be very specific about who we are, what we're interested in, who we're attracted to. Ultimately, we're moving into a future where people are less attached to traditional gender roles, traditional notions of partnership. All of these kinds of staples of life are transforming into a digital era. And my kids say to me all the time, like, why do you have to say what you are? What does that mean? Like, why do you have to label yourself? You know, and I think it's so interesting because for them, it's just so fluid. It's just an interesting time because while we've worked so hard in some ways to define ourselves and to have a right to, you know, love who we want to love and live how we want to live, at the same time, there's this question about, you know, have we overdefined ourselves? Have we kind of boxed ourselves in to a certain extent? And so I really appreciate the simplicity of I identify as human. You know, obviously a lot of our readers are Gen Z. I definitely see this focus on fluidity as mm -hmm. well with Gen Z. And I'm personally obviously all for it. I do think that it can be hard to kind of think about holding those two things at the same time, right? The ability to kind of identify almost really specifically with these kind of ever-evolving labels, but then also kind of be almost post-identity and just say, I'm human. But I do think that they're totally not mutually exclusive. I think that that's actually the point, right, is that you have the freedom to identify, but you don't necessarily have to or you're not really um, pressured to really kind of self-identify or present in any specific way. And we're coming from a place where to self-identify was to occupy a politicized identity. I imagine, Pam, that in your coming out process, being a lesbian was taking a decisive stand as a visible person. And that might be difficult for kids today to understand that we are coming from a status quo thinking that's entirely different today. Yeah, that's such a good point. Felt like such a declarative time in my life, right, where I had to say who I was. This felt so big and so important. And I think the community around that has also been a big part of this, right? Like finding other people like me and my love for places like the cubbyhole where I can hang out with other queer women has been a big part of that as well. But one of the things I'm hoping to talk about today is the impact of this conversation on queer culture and pop culture in and of itself. Zachary, congratulations on your upcoming film, Framing Agnes, and on the nomination of The Lady in the Dale from the Independent Spirits Award, which is just insane. Thank you. I know these are just a few of many accomplishments you've achieved in film and TV, but you've also done a significant amount of work in the arts. Let's just start at the beginning, if you will. I want to hear about your background growing up and how you got to where you are today. Can you just give us a little bit of the magic? As we were discussing pre-show, figuring out if we're related, both Druckers, my lineage is Jewish Ashkenazi immigrants, 20th century oh God, we're immigrants. We're so related. <laughs> I grew up in a you know diasporic community in Syracuse, New York came of age in the 80s and 90s, got into Riot Girl and queercore punk, and found photography as a way of envisioning myself outside the constraints of my reality at the time, which was really isolated. And I was one of those folks who could never hide being queer and trans. I didn't quite have the language at the time for that, but I found it in the form of Kate Bornstein's book, Gender Outlaw. I moved to New York City the day after I graduated high school, and I went to the School of Visual Arts for photography. I came into 
media making through the art world, a little bit of a side door entrance. But I've never wanted to do the same thing twice. I made a commitment to myself as a child to never be bored as an adult. <laughs> and I really <laughs> switched it up over and over again. Quite obviously, so much of your work has been focused on identity or the idea of identity, rather. Can you tell me a little bit or tell us a little bit about how maybe that's evolved? I started my medical transition in the early 2000s as a young person. I was 21 in New York City at Callan Lord's hot program. <laughs> Iconic. <laughs> and the distance that trans and gender nonconforming people have made in that time is just immeasurable. It's so hard to fathom the amount of change that's happened in this 15-year period. And I feel like I straddle a few generations at this point of lived experience as a trans woman, um, never neatly fit into the boxes of the early aughts, and at the time, you had to say that you were a pre-op transsexual or a post-op transsexual. Uh -huh. By and large, there was absolutely no representation in film, television, media, even in the art world. And it's been a life mission to create those stories, to put them out there and, and to reach the broadest possible audience. And it's taken many different forms. You know, I was doing some research and I was looking at all this progress that we're talking about. I was actually looking at the best of 2021 lists and what to look forward to in 2022. And I couldn't help but notice one thing that's really changed and progressed, which is the queer representation almost everywhere or everywhere I looked. Everything from the reboot of Whether You Like It or Not and Just Like That to Gossip Girl to even Jeopardy. There's a ton of representation or maybe allowed representation of our community I was also happy to see that MJ was recognized by the Hollywood Foreign Press Association for her role in Pose on Sunday night, which I just think is fucking amazing. Epic. Winning Best Performance by an Actress in a Drama Series. I just have to pause for a minute on that. Sarah, I'd love your thoughts on this moment, how important this is for the trans community, but for the queer community at large. Yeah, I mean, I do think it's this win, but it's also everything that you were talking about, right? I do think that we have really created a new standard across media, but also in television and film. You just can't get away with ignoring queer talent and queer stories anymore. Let me ask you this question, though, because I know it's not for lack of queer community wanting to tell their stories. Is it because the community at large, the audiences are, are ready to see them and hear them? Is it because it's attracting more audience in general? Like, why is it happening now? I think that it kind of has to do with what we were talking about before, with Gen Z and fluidity, right? I think increasingly we're seeing a more and more porous kind of divide between what is, quote-unquote, queer culture and what is mainstream culture. This is a generation that's not going to ignore queer creators and content throughout the year except for June and then all of a sudden care, right? These are people who are engaging with queer content and creators, et cetera, 
on a daily basis and also potentially not even really differentiating, right? Not even thinking about it as queer. For instance, little Nas X, like he is so momentous in terms of just having appeal across such a wide range of demographics and also being so unabashedly queer. So I think part of it is just that we're seeing that divide crumble a little bit in a really exciting way. And also that people are just seeing that these stories are legitimately interesting. Dare I say, are we becoming mainstream? Is that what you're saying? That in in a way, queer culture is just becoming pop culture? And are we more a part of mainstream than we were 10 years ago? Zachary, what do you think? I think that cultural change precipitates political change, usually by 10 years. You see that in the case of Ellen DeGeneres, and then marriage equality about 10 years Mm -hmm. later. And I hope that the work that we're doing culturally ultimately impacts federal legislation. I've always felt that the future moves in both directions, and that's more true now than ever before, that as there is progress, there is also resistance to a modernizing world. And queer and trans people are being put in the center of the debate because we represent a modernized path. And that's explosively disturbing to folks. I read a great piece by Jennifer Finney Boyland in the New York Times this past weekend about Amy Schneider, the Jeopardy contestant. And Boyland asserts that it's the normalcy of this is the first woman on Jeopardy to yada, yada, yada. And the claim that this transgender woman is a woman is what's inflammatory. It's so interesting to kind of, I'm 46. I remember the Ellen moment as so significant and how insignificant that is now. If you think about Lil Nas today, could there have been a Lil Nas 20 years ago? And the answer is no. It's hard not to recognize the progress and to talk about the representation and how far we've come, but also to recognize that we still have such a long way to go. And I mentioned that in my intro that there was like a 17% increase in elected government officials, which is almost 1,000 members, but we would still need 28,000 more to achieve equity. And while we have one significant NFL player who has come out publicly, which is a great advancement, you know, that's out of an entire league. And while we forget that gay marriage was not legalized in the U.S. until 2015, it's hard to believe that, like, all of my children, I have three boys, were born before that moment. And I actually had to go through the process of adopting the children that I carried in my belly because of that ridiculousness. And former President Trump banned transgender people from military service in 2018. That was, like, five minutes ago. So much has transpired over the past few years, and it was during that time Connie Nass launched the brand Them. I remember the significance of that. The superstar Teen Vogue editor Phil Picardi, you know, I remember him coming into my office with this amazing idea for something so provocative. And I was like, what's so provocative? You know, this concept of launching a brand with a mission to focus on the queer community. And I was just so proud of him in that moment in time, but also just as scared as he was that Connie Nast wouldn't go for it. I do think part of the challenge around this understanding that there's such a long way to go is just keeping people motivated and optimistic. And 
one of the things that I really love about them is it's fun. It's entertaining. It's not just about the fight, but the fight is such a huge part of the DNA of the brand. Yeah. I mean, I think, especially right now, we're all tired. After two years of a totally. pandemic, I think we can all agree that we're exhausted. Yeah. But... I also think that, like, one of the great things about covering the LGBTQ community is that I do find that anytime you're covering an issue, there is some pushback around it that exemplifies queer ingenuity, resourcefulness. I think that queer people are always inventing new ways around systems, inventing ways to help each other when they fall through the safety nets. And so you can always report on the issues, and obviously that's necessary and important, but there's also ways to do it where you are highlighting the resilience and in that way, reminding people that we can continue being proactive, that we don't have to just give up and stay in bed. Well, perfect segue, because in 2021, uh, uniques were up 43 percent and time spent was almost 15 percent with more than a million loyal fans across multiple platforms. Sarah, how do you think about where them is and where you would like to take it simply? What really drew me to them and what has always felt really special about them is that it has really been able to carve out what feels like a safe space for queer readers within media. And I think that's because of the founding mission of really being inclusive and intersectional right from the start. This is something that was really intentionally built from the start by a really diverse group of people and is for queer people inclusively. But I do think now me coming in about five years down the line, so much, again, as we've been talking about, has changed in terms of seeing representation for queer stories across media. And mm -hmm. we're seeing the New York Times, we're seeing all these other publications covering the same stories as us, which is so fantastic, right? That's a huge win. And it also opens up an opportunity for us to say, okay, what is our next step? And for me, that is really differentiating how we do our work. So in terms of reporting, that means providing the most care and rigor to LGBTQ stories. In terms of culture, that means really, really allowing ourselves to tap into those community conversations that maybe straight cis people like are really not going to understand, but allowing ourselves to just lead our own conversation that way. Or when profiling a celebrity, really having an intimate conversation from one queer person to another that you just wouldn't see in another publication. So, But here's kind of a provocative question, because as we talk about this, it's like, here's a brand end-to-end -end that's about inclusivity, and it always has been. In theory, shouldn't all brands just be inclusive? Like, is that the future? Like, shouldn't all brands kind of look and sound like them? I mean, topic aside, theme aside. Yeah. I mean, I do think that every single brand, right, should be inclusive. And I do think after 2020, we are seeing a lot of progress. And I do want to say, to me, them, although it started out as that safe space, it's no longer driven by inclusivity, right? That is just matter of fact, I think. Mm -hmm. It's like 24-hour shipping now. It just exists. Right. I think it's just—I think that's just the status quo, right? It's just assumed, yes, mm -hmm. we've got diverse people in the room, and then this is what we care about. So we're, we're just going to write about the things that 
are worrying us, are exciting us. We're going to write about all of the ways that queer and trans people are at the forefront of trends and social change, et cetera, through our lens. And whether you're queer or not, we'll deliver it to you. And is there a story that you feel hasn't been told yet that you're excited to tell as you think about 2022? There are so many. As I said, we're expanding our original reporting quite a lot. That said, I I want to keep my best stories kind of close to my chest, but... Yeah, we don't do this on this pod. We reveal it all here, <laughs> and then you can keep it sacred later. But I hear you. Zachary, <laughs> when it comes to queer and trans culture, how can we continue to progress and evolve? Like, from your perspective, where are we succeeding and where are we still lacking? I am so appreciative of Sarah's point of view. And I think it takes all of us doing this every day for the rest of our lives to push it forward and that we can't rest on our laurels. I hope that young people who are benefiting from the social justice work that's been done will participate in the fight. It's like we're really in the middle of it. Witnessing the machine of Hollywood from my vantage point in Los Angeles, it's not quite as clear cut as people think it is. While there is a lot of development of queer and trans storytelling, there is not the same level of investment in actually producing these projects. And so very often I hear friends developing projects with studios, with networks, and it seems like very few of them actually reach us on our screens. A show like Pose, while very successful in the U.S., is, is not successful internationally necessarily. It's mm. it's not sold to many other countries. And is that because internationally these markets and consumers are behind where the U.S. consumers in terms of acceptance or like what you said earlier around Absolutely. gay marriage being legalized, some of these other things that we're seeing impact 10 years after? And culturally, I would say that our community is really at the at the top of the work that's being done globally. I think that in the States, we've really created a massive coalition and had an impact in entertainment and culture and politics. In terms of pop culture, I had a very important question for you, and that is, what are you guys watching, listening to, watching? How do you spend your time when you're not working on your own shit? Zachary, you go first. I love Pen15. It's one of my favorites. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Obsessed. I really appreciate comedy, anything that makes me laugh. And so that's ben. what I'm there for. I watch a lot of documentaries. Do you have a favorite right now? I loved uh, The Way Down on HBO, which was mm. about a uh, woman, evangelical preacher, weight loss, directed by Marina Zenovich. That was a recent one. I loved Hacks. Love also. it. So, mm -hmm. so many things. I mean, there was such great shows and, yeah. and films this past year. I loved Harsh Reality, which was mm -hmm. a Wondery podcast about Miriam Rivera, a trans woman who was on reality television in the early 
reality craze. It was a British show. It never aired in the U.S., but incredible story about the making of it and, of course, what happened to the protagonist. That was produced by one of my favorite trans historians, Morgan Page. And I'm thrilled to see Agnes at Sundance. I actually have the link and I'm going to try to watch it tonight. (laughs) Amazing. And Sarah, what about you? What are your favorite things? First of all, everything that Zachary mentioned, pretty much, except for The Way Down. I haven't seen that and I will promptly watch it. I'm like, how honest should I be? I can tell you literally what I've watched this kind of week. First of all, obviously, now that Euphoria is back, that is just Mm. the new structure of my world. My days are just like Mm -hmm. countdowns to new episodes of Euphoria now. I loved Sort Of on HBO. I am also watching Yellow Jackets, which is just so engrossing. It's definitely binge-worthy content. Zachary, you're making a face. You agree? Yeah. There's so much and not enough time to watch it all. I could not agree more. And no one jumped on my Tampa Bay's um, bit, but I will say, if you want to just pass some time, I highly recommend it on Amazon Prime. And I would also add, since you asked, Pen15 is, I like live and die for that show. And my wife made me watch it. I was like, I have a really hard time, like, starting a new series. I feel like it takes a lot. For me, I'll watch documentaries all day. But, like, taking on a new series, it's like Mm -hmm. having a new friend. It's like, I don't know if I can have a new friend right now. I have too much on my plate. Well, according to Gallup, one in six adult Gen Z identifies as non-heterosexual, making Gen Z the queerest generation ever. And as demographics and preferences and audiences shift and grow, what does this mean for the stories we tell? And I was also just going to say a lot of the work you're doing, Zachary, is actually creating that impact. I hope to think that as this becomes more of a viable business, to your point, and so it makes you wonder how many projects are still not getting off the ground or getting funded and what's a story that is yet to be told or what are the types of projects that you'd like to see really get the platform and the audience that it deserves? For myself, I'm interested in the stories of of resilience, as Sarah mentioned, and the stories of, of people who are flawed protagonists like Liz Carmichael and The Lady in the Dale and the project I'm currently working on. I think there is heroism in everyday survival and that we don't have to be perfect. There are no perfect role models because there are no perfect people. And there's a desire to elevate figures who are really heroic in in their actions. And yet so many of us cannot reach that bar and to tell the stories of folks who have made mistakes and are relatable. Those are the stories I'm interested in. The Outsiders and the Renegades. There you go. I love The Outsiders and the Renegades. Tell us a little bit about your most recent project, Lady in the Dale. It was an incredible education for me. And talk about a measure of of perspectives. Liz Carmichael came out as trans in the 1960s and flew under the radar. People didn't know that she was trans. They didn't know even that a trans person would be 
taking the audacious step to start her own company to sell options on an energy efficient three-wheeled car called the Dale. She was an Elizabeth Holmes of her era and paid the price heftily. Her story was not one that I was aware of. And that's the thing that I'm excited about is the stories that we don't know yet, the stories that will emerge. And one of the serendipitous kind of miraculous parts of being alive at this moment is knowing that these inspiring characters will emerge from the past, that we will unearth them and understand more about ourselves by understanding where we're coming from. It's such an amazing opportunity because it's like the stories that couldn't be told before. To your point, it's just like such a, a beautiful, wonderful opportunity that you're a part of and that you're leading. So nothing but respect there. I want to flip to brands and marketers for a moment. The queer community represents almost $4 trillion in annual spending globally, which is why it's still like insane to me that advertisers and marketers still have what they would call diversity budgets as if like they're these fringe budgets. And, you know, a lot of them are really proud of themselves for having those budgets. And, you know, I've said very vocally in meetings, I'll know we've gotten there when you don't refer to it as a diversity budget. Like, no offense. But as I said before, $4 trillion, I think, speaks volumes. And as a brand, if you want to connect with this powerhouse of spending, you have to connect with this community and you have to do it authentically. And as I said in my intro, not just during Pride, I always say, I'm queer all year, so what are you going to do about it? Know that this is a, a really important time. I think advertisers are really leaned in, and I do think they want to do the right thing. But oftentimes, I think they're just not sure how to connect with the community authentically when their strategy hasn't been authentic. So I guess my question for you, Sarah, like if you are giving advice to a, a marketer out there who's you know looking to connect with queer culture authentically, like what is the right approach? How should one think about it differently? I feel like this is like an age old question, mm -hmm. but I do feel like the answer is relatively simple in my opinion. I think one, you really hit the nail on the head about not just using June and pride as your moment to connect to queer people. I think increasingly, especially, you know, among Gen Z, people can sniff that out. It's become pretty obvious. And I'm glad that I am seeing more and more brands doing queer inclusive campaigns at other times of the year. And I, as a consumer, I really do notice that. I just noticed that on Match, you know, there was two women. They met on Match. I was like, oh, look at this. I actually noticed it, even though I never, like, online dated because I got married way too young. But Yeah, I mean, I want stats on it, honestly, because I feel like since 2020, it has just skyrocketed, the number of campaigns that I've seen outside of Pride. Yeah, so that's the one thing, right, is just obviously invest when it's not Pride. And the second thing is just hiring queer people. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. not all queer people are the same. So it's not like you can just plug someone in and they'll know everything. But I do think that it's so obvious when the production team, etc., is made up of queer people and when it's not. And increasingly I'm seeing campaigns where it's brands just giving artists a platform, for instance, and saying like, hey, we'll give you some money and maybe just like make like a short film instead of making an ad where they're casting queer people. And I do think that those are the campaigns that I see going viral on Instagram in the queer community. And Zachary, what's your perspective on that? How impactful is it if you're paying attention to 
insert brand, that you see trans representation. How does that motivate you to want to be a part of that brand or to spend against that brand? Does it feel authentic? Does it feel inauthentic? I am an eternal optimist and I always appreciate being thought of. I would much prefer that to erasure, to not being represented. And the gesture in and of itself, what I think is more interesting is brands who are tacitly perpetuating a white supremacist standard of of advertising. And I'm noticing that more often. I think the gesture is important because I think as consumers, as people, we look for people that look like us. And I think that's just inherent. I don't think marketers always do it the right way, though. And I think those are growing pains. And I'm, I'm willing to stick with a brand that's at least trying to get there. That all being said, I also think it's ironic that there's just as many marketers that aren't trying to do that, but yet they're very focused on Gen Z. And I'm like, well, how are you going to speak to Gen Z if you're not black and brown and queer? Because like that's this generation and that is every generation coming up behind Gen Z. Zachary, it is a pleasure to have you and to meet you, and I'm a huge fan of your work. And it sounds like you have so many amazing things coming up and in store for 2022, and I will be checking out Lady in the Dale momentarily. And Sarah, you are a rock star, and I think the brand Them is in very good hands, and I think we're all looking forward to all the beautiful things you're going to do with Them in 2022. Thank you so much, Pam. Thank you, Pam. What a pleasure. We will be going on 23andMe shortly, Zachary, to find our connection. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. I am your host, Pam Druckerman. Talk to you next time. Follow Influences Currency wherever you listen to podcasts for monthly episodes. To hear more from Pam, follow her on LinkedIn. This podcast was produced by Seaplane Armada. It was created by Deirdre Connors, Courtney Verdier, Eric Johnson, Danielle Altolio, Julie Shen, Nico Steele, and Grace Stearns, with creative direction by Nancy Rosenberg and talent outreach and casting by Amanda Miller, Fiona Kellerman, and Greg Tharker.